All right, guys, we're back on the What Is Money show. I am sitting down again today with Mr. Jimmy Song, and we're going to be further exploring the book by Hoppe called Democracy, the God That Failed. And we left off last time really just laying out that the lack of a property right, I guess you might say, in the tax base creates all of these uh, distortions in modern democracy that we didn't have under ancient monarchy. And so I guess in general, the incentives are much different, let's say, between monarchical mm-hmm. rule and democratic rule. And so today, I think we'll start this conversation just working our way through chapter one of the book, looking at how democracy actually destroys private law. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of interesting to me that you know, there's this common law discovery process versus this, uh, I think he calls it public law, which is more of like a legislative or positive law process. So the difference being uh, something that has more of a Lindy effect, something that's been patterns of action that have been observed over time that um, legislators, I suppose, or judges are actually saying, this is the common law. This is, we've discovered this law by observing human action over time versus mm-hmm. the positive law approach. And please correct me where I'm wrong here of just saying, this is the rule, you know, someone's opinion mm-hmm. basically becomes a rule. Is that, mm-hmm. uh, is that roughly correct? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would characterize it as sort of like decentralized versus centralized law. And mm. Stefan Kinsella, who's a, you know, a lawyer and writes about this stuff, um, think uh, has written about this particular thing where, uh, you know, decentralized law has this property where it's kind of difficult to change. You need a lot of uh, different decisions uh, in order to overturn um, you know, some, something like common law, it, it, you know, they, they recognize property right and stuff like that. And uh, it's like you said, it's, it's more like you're discovering it um, through, uh, through like various decisions by judges and so on. And, uh, you know, at the beginning, it's not quite certain what's, what's going to, uh, you know, prevail and so on. But, uh, but it's based on natural law. It's based mm-hmm. on sort of like rights that we have and, and, and so on. Instead of sort of this top-down approach of legislation, which is just sort of given to everybody, uh, that's not to say that monarchs don't do the same thing. But typically, they uh, they leave it uh, to sort of like uh, judges and other sort of aristocrats, I guess, that that decide on that stuff on a case by case basis. Instead of uh, sort of like a one size fits all thing. And this is something that a, liar, a lot of lawyers talk about is how the law is just, you know, not very um, uh, adaptable to a particular situation. And uh, they're often written very badly. Um, I, I, I know, for example, like the infrastructure bill from a few weeks ago was like 2000 something pages. There was no way anyone had time to go read all of it before voting on it yet that's right. exactly what they did um and you know the the centralized law or decentralized law tends to be very hard to change and evolves over time very slowly uh whereas a centralized law is almost always just sort of done very suddenly with massive disruption to everybody um and the fact that you can have centralized law is 
is what makes a lot of uh, things in a democracy so uncertain because you have no idea what the law is going to be next week because the legislator can essentially, um, you know, uh, change things uh, a week from now and you might be completely screwed over. And a lot of people, especially with respect to taxes, which we'll talk about later, um, you know, like get screwed over on that regard. And it, it, it tends to, uh, you know, encourage sort of building for the short term instead of the long term because you don't have the right time horizon as a result of, you know, the possible legislation that may come against you. Yeah, it seems like there is a fundamental pattern here uh, because what it calls to mind is, you know, central banking also destroys another form of discovery mm-hmm. that's very important mm-hmm. to coordination, which is price discovery. So we have kind of the idea of, I guess, having a decentralized model that's more premised on discovery, whether it's law discovery or price discovery, that's a Mm -hmm. decentralized kind of bottom-up model, or you can have something that's centralized and top-down that's more premised on policy, right? Just whoever Mm -hmm. is in that position of power, you know, if the the Fed, they get to basically dictate prices to some extent, just bidding up whatever they want with a money printer. Uh, similarly, legislators in Washington can just pass a law based on mm. whatever, right? There's no discovery. It doesn't need to adhere to reality in any way. It can just be someone's opinion. Um, mm. And this has the quality of increasing uncertainty, right? Because now mm. the rest of us trying to coordinate and operate ourselves, we don't know what the Fed's going to do next week. We don't know what mm-hmm. Washington policymaker is going to do. So law mm. and money... Right, which are really the rule sets through, mm. through which we interoperate, they become less predictable. So there's no way to form a sound economic strategy or behave uh, in a way that's productive. You're just constantly kind of in in a defensive mode of existence. Yeah, and that that's that's a real problem in terms of productivity. Mm-hmm. And again, it comes down to sort of this. Um, this divide between empiricism and rationalism, uh, where you can you can derive certain things from, uh, you know, first principles, and that's that's what decentralized law is. That's what English common law is. It's mm-hmm. you have these rights, right? You have the right to life, the right to liberty, the right to property, the right to all kinds of things, and based on those rights, what is the right thing here? What is the mm-hmm. right judgment to make? on this particular case. And that that's how you, you know, sort of law gets quote unquote discovered. Uh, whereas with, you know, centralized law, uh, you know, natural rights are more or less thrown out the window. And we, we can see that even in the last year and a half where we don't even have the right to assemble or, you know, uh, right to, you know, uh, uh, liberty uh, or, you know, travel or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that sort of get overwritten because, in a sense, the central party becomes uh, the central authority and they they decide what rights you have. And, you're, you, you know, they don't even really acknowledge that you have rights. And democracy has a tendency to sort of go in this direction where your rights are no longer sacred. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, not, not to say that monarchy, um, you know, preserves it necessarily either. Uh, but at the very least in a monarchy, there there is this sort of like very clear boundaries between what's yours and what's the king's and so on. Uh, with public property, with public law, it's like you, it, it's uh, a lot like the other patterns that he notices where 
you know, there, there's this sense in which you share in some of the creation of it. So you feel mm-hmm. somewhat responsible. Uh, whereas like, you, you know, in a monarchy and the king decrees something and you don't agree with it, well, you, you would complain and protest and say, well, yeah. this is completely unjust and whatever. Uh, you know, with, with public law, like you sort of had a hand in possibly voting in somebody. So you you have some responsibility or some stake in the laws that are kind of made. And it, it kind of puts us in this uh, Stockholm syndrome thing that we talked about earlier. Uh, and ultimately, you know, this is because of this top down nature and like mm-hmm. top down, like is like very much an empiricist thing because obviously they have more data than you do, right? The individual actor down at the bottom and it is very much data driven, right? It's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we, uh, we observe these things and these effects and therefore this is the best policy and so on. And of course, in that sort of mental framework, uh, the people with the most data can make the best decisions and the people at the top have the most data. So they feel justified in making legislation, in making policy, in making economic judgments and putting their thumbs on the scales and picking winners and losers and all these things that we see uh, as really unjust, sort of like against natural law, against human rights kind of things. Uh, in, in part because they feel, you know, that that's the uh, philosophical framework that they come from. And it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, it's at heart, uh, um, like comes down to philosophy, which is, mm-hmm. to me, kind of a surprising conclusion from this, that, uh, you know, our theories of knowledge or how we know things are, you know, affects so many things from a governance standpoint and from, sort of, uh, you know, how, how things end up operating and how, uh, you know, the game theory of, uh, of markets end up working out. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, so it's as if, you know, the top-down model, whether it be central banking or a top-down legislative model, you know, I guess you could say central banking is destroying information a lot of ways. Like the market mm. can't communicate well with itself. So we get mess allocation of capital and all these other consequences. And in this sense, the top down uh, positive law, which I think he makes the point that we, we drift more towards positive civil law as a result mm. Um, mm. of eliminating this discovery process. This is actually distorting justice. Right. Mm. I mean, you're just creating more <laughs> unjust rules in society. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And uh, it depends on how you define justice. Uh, but mm-hmm. if, if you believe in natural law, then justice is something that's intrinsic to reality rather than sort right. of whatever the government says is uh, is the law. Um, and th- this has traditionally been the big check on government is, you know, I- is it just and, you know, the worst sort of offenders of uh you know humanity like the governments that we think of as the absolute worst tend mm-hmm. to be the biggest violators of that right like right. Uh, if we think about nazi germany or you know mao's china or stalin's russia right like they we we think of them as evil because they took away our right to liberty and or their their people's right to liberty and mm-hmm. property and life um, and th- those are some of the most fundamental things and if if the government gets to decide on that stuff, and th- this is uh, sort of like the point, I think, of what, what he's saying is positive law uh, essentially is this idea. And this is where positivism comes from. It, it's 
that the government gives you rights versus, you know, you having rights on your own. Uh, mm. um, and I, I think uh, my friend uh, that I mentioned earlier, Stefan Kinsella, he, he points out, like, whenever you have positive law, it almost always takes away a negative right, right? Like your freedom right. of speech or freedom of life or liberty or pursuit of happiness or property or something like that. Uh, usually it's property of some kind. Um, and that, uh, in effect, like, makes everything worse. Uh, and there, there is something about natural law and prosperity that are really intimately linked that I think you're, mm-hmm. you, you've made the connection with. Um, you know, if, if you violate natural law, you tend to have, uh, you know, just misery uh, mm-hmm. and just all, all sorts of bad things happen. If you, uh, you know, if you do the opposite, if you if you're in line with natural law, things things tend to be much better, and you mm-hmm. you have civilization building and long term outlooks and things like that. Um, and neither central banks nor sort of like this top down lawmaking, which is a, a central feature of democracy, to be honest, um, you know, tend tend to be uh, you know a big part of. Um, you know, democracies, right? Like it, 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 it tends to make things much, much worse. Yeah. And so we just for clarity on the natural law, where mm. I typically conceive of this as just the right to life, liberty, property. And you can mm. really distill all of that to property rights. Ultimately, when you consider that mm-hmm. you are your own property, effectively, your mm-hmm. liberty is your own property. It's your right to do mm-hmm. as you please, so long as you don't transgress against the property of others. Um, it seems like that really is the basis of a sustainable civilization over time. Like if you just have these respect for property rights, uh, and mm-hmm. you know, Rothbard's written a lot about this. He, he developed an entire ethics built up around property mm-hmm. rights. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I guess at the point here, decentralization seems to give us this stability over time, right? There's the. Mm-hmm. Everyone is getting more of a say. So therefore, the mm-hmm. coherence of the, the group seems to be more uh, integral over time, effectively. Mm-hmm. Whereas centralization is kind of the opposite, right? You get the willpower of a few being imposed mm-hmm. on the many. And that's just inherently mm-hmm. un- unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, this book or this, this book and this chapter started with this focus on time preference, as being, you know, civilization being kind of a reflection of the aggregate time preference of, mm-hmm. of citizens. And all of this instability over time is raising time preference. So I think to his point, mm-hmm. like this is all de-civilizing, um, mm-hmm. which is really just incredible to think about. It's like all of these attempts, and he makes this point later, I think that even if the intentions are good, right? Oh, we're trying to help mm-hmm. the poor, we're trying to go to war to spread mm-hmm. democracy or whatever. The intentions are divergent from the outcome because you're actually raising society's time preference and then therefore causing uh, civilization to break down. So I'll read one little excerpt here Mm. where he kind of covers some of these points. Hoppe says, quote, he does not create new law, but merely occupies a privileged position within an an existing all-encompassing system of private law. He's referring to the monarch here. In contrast, with a publicly owned and administered government, a new type of law emerges, public law, which exempts government agents from personal liability and withholds publicly owned resources from economic management. Mm. With the establishment of public law, 
including constitutional and administrative law, not merely as law, but as a higher law, a gradual erosion of private law ensues. That is, there's an increasing subordination and displacement of private law by and through public law. So once again, this is something that disentangles or separates the property right of the rulers from the ruled and mm. destroys incentives, right? Now, um, mm. these democratic rulers are, you know, they're absolved from personal liability. So all of a sudden they can kind mm. of just do whatever they want while they're quote unquote renting the tax base mm. and they don't have any skin in the game in the long run. So mm. it just keeps coming back to property in my view. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, and I, I think certainly like Hoppe and, uh, and Rothbard, uh, you know, say, the, say so much in their books, right? Like ethics of liberty is pretty much, um, you know, Rothbard's way of, uh, you know, coming up with, uh, you know, moral, moral system based on that. Mm -hmm. um, and Hoppe does something similar in socialism and capitalism, where he, he comes up with uh, some level of morality based on that. Um, I would say natural law is maybe a bit more than that. And it is sort of like a, uh, you know, a code of justice and code of behavior. Um, certainly as a Christian, I think, uh, you know, th this is the law written on our hearts that, uh, that the Bible talks about and so mm -hmm. on. Uh, stuff that, you know, everyone has, right? It, it, they have a conscience or they have some sense of right and wrong that's instilled mm -hmm. in them. And it's, it, it's, uh, you know, common across a lot of cultures, right? Like it, it's never been honorable to run away like a coward in the middle of a battle, right? Like mm -hmm. that's something that C.S. Lewis uh, writes about, uh, you know, in any culture that, that that's never right. been honored, right? Like it's, it's, yeah. it's pretty objective that that is a stupid or, or a very like sort of not, uh, not something to be celebrated. Um, yeah. It, you know, th there's a there there's a lot of that that uh, that sort of like, and this go goes back to sort of the denial of God from the Enlightenment thinkers and going going through to Nietzsche and um, and, uh, and and past that. Uh, you know, th this is kind of what it does is uh, you know it, in an attempt to sort of make things more objective, you actually make things more subjective, right? Uh, like yeah. by quote unquote, making it more objective by removing God from the equation, you make it actually way more uh, arbitrary and you get yeah. sort of these uh, horrible, you know, governments and regimes like Nazi Germany and Stalin's Russia and so on, mm -hmm. which, which ends up like killing a lot more people. And it's it just becomes this uh like, like you sort of hinted, uh, this will to power contest where mm -hmm. they can impose their will because they have the strength, they they have the power and they have uh, the means and the ability uh, with their monopoly on violence to do something like that. And it, it is interesting, like, and maybe a question that we, we should explore a little further uh, when we get a chance, like how much of this, uh, you know, monarchy versus democracy, um, you know, divide is really more about like a divide between, you know, uh, governments that actually had, you know, believed in the existence of God versus not. Because we've had, you know, more or less monarchies in something like North Korea, where you know you you have a succession and mm. it's uh, it's uh, it's somebody that rules and so on. 
Um, but you know, they, they're an atheist country and of course they are known for their brutal repression and so on. Mm. So, um, I, I suspect that there, there's something to that, that maybe Hapa has missed in this, uh, particular mm. work. I mean, there's, there's a lot of brilliant stuff about it, but it might be conflating a couple of things where, you know, in a sense, like uh, the monarchy he's talking about is a monarchy based on sort of like the divine right of kings and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the democracy that he's talking about is sort of like a reaction against uh, sort of like what what they view as sort of like this ancient tradition that uh, that has no basis in reality or something like that, where mm. atheism is sort of like uh, the granted thing, because in a sense, like the U.S. up until a, a certain time, like it, it was a very Christian country. And, mm-hmm. you know, that prevented a lot of the excesses of democracy or a lot of the problems that he talked about. And, you know, it wasn't until sort of like the progressive era and all of this uh, stuff coming in, uh, you know, I, the progressive era has like the trifecta of like the worst amendments ever, right? Like the income tax, obviously, prohibition, and uh, and the one that uh, a lot of people don't really understand the full consequences of, which was the direct election of senators, which essentially removed state sovereignty because that was the house for the states. And senators were beholden to their state legislatures. And if they didn't vote the way the state legislator wanted, then the state legislator, uh, the state legislature would just pull them out and say, all right, we're, we're going to replace you with somebody else. Um, and or, you know, they would resign or something like that. That 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 was a big part of sort of like the checks and balances, mm. which got removed as a as a part of that progressive era. So, you know, that um, that turned towards. Uh, you know, sort of a, you know, more authoritarian state, I think happened as a result of, um, you know, a lot of what happened in the 1800s, essentially the denial of God and uh, turn towards secularism. Yeah, that's really interesting. I am reflecting back on that law, the way you described it, the law written on our heart. Mm-hmm. And it seems to mm-hmm. me like a lot of this, you know, the the ideologies, I'm just thinking about communism in general. It kind of preys mm. on that, doesn't it? I mean, it's mm. it's trying to leverage people's own compassion over them in a way. It's like you know, I mm. always go, the the Marxist uh, precept from each according to their ability to each according to their need. It has this mm. wonderful, compassionate family feel thing to it. Mm-hmm. But it was used then to perpetrate, you know, basically to justify more government power, which led to, mm. you know, the exact opposite, total atrocities, starvation, mass murder. Um, and it seems like, I mean, people get very wishy-washy when we talk about God, but you could maybe in a more secular description of it, it's when the leaders aren't beholden to a higher principle, right? All of a sudden, mm, yeah. they just have absolute power. And it's just unchecked and it becomes completely corrupt. Um, And I, yeah, I don't, it's uh, definitely seems to be a connection between the removal of God and then this slide towards totalitarianism. And I wonder if it is something just, there's a necessity there, right? Like we are religious by nature in a way, you know, we have to have these Mm. systems that cohere us. And when you, when you, what what is uh, Jordan Peterson says when you confuse the principle of sovereignty with an individual sovereign, like an individual mm-hmm. actor, that's when you have problems. Mm-hmm. It's like that it, the sovereign actor, whoever it is, the democratic or the monarch, 
they need to always be beholden to this principle of sovereignty or, or some higher principle. Mm-hmm. And when that linkage is broken, um, it just it becomes a tyranny, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this happened in ancient times, too, where, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a ruler would declare themselves to be God and right. would then no longer be subject and they would commit all sorts of atrocities and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's just that, you know, they it, it's like a different form of that in the sense that, uh, you know, when you when you have uh, sort of the more modern state, a more modern atheist state, you you get people that. Once they get into power, you know, they, you know, absolute power curves. Absolutely. They yeah. it really does sort of like change their perspective significantly. And it's almost like humans just are not able to handle that level of power it, mm-hmm. or, or that level of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Like that's just not a role that we're suited for is ruling over other humans in this sort of absolute way. Maybe being a caretaker. And this is where maybe you know, Hoppe's conception of monarchy has some merit in the sense that, you know, if you were a king, you you believed in the divine right of kings, but you also believed in the divine responsibility of kings, right? Like you were there to take care of your people. Right. And and uh, and that that was uh, sort of like uh, what what you were responsible responsible for after you died is answering answering you know the higher power and saying yes. okay this is what I did to take care of my people uh, the people that you put uh, under my charge uh, no such thing exists once you kind of remove the higher power it's just well I'm gonna do whatever I want uh, for the right. sake of uh, whatever and you know at, at least with communism in particular it was. It, it was kind of like a higher power, except it was a higher power that was more or less just sort of like a vision of the future, right? It was this right. idea of workers' paradise um, that, yeah, and it, it was very Gnostic in that way. Like mm-hmm. just uh, Marx was like, hey, uh, the, these are the stages that we have to go through. You start with capitalism, <laughs> right. then you go to socialism, then you go to right. communism and, you know, everything is great. It's like, well, how the hell do you know that? It's, yeah. it, it had no yeah. basis in anything other than, OK, this is this is how I think it'll be. Um, but, you know, th- this is what all the communists believe. Right. Like Lenin right. I mean, Stalin. It's crazy to me that a lot of people view him as kind of a megalomaniac, and he he kind of was. But mm. at the same time, like they, uh, you know, you would think that somebody in that kind of position would just sort of like you know do, you know, uh, work a little bit and like enjoy his harem or you know like mm. food and whatever, kind of like Kim Jong Un does. But yeah. uh, but that's that's not at all what he did he worked like 18 hours a day and feverishly to bring the communist workers wow. paradise uh you know out like and he he worked 18 hours a day from like 1923 to till the day he died like this wow. this was not somebody that was driven uh by just sort of like um you know, a desire to rule over other people it was yeah. actually in service of something else completely Right. That's so interesting. Yeah. So the North Korean leader, Kim, he's effectively like a God King, right? They've removed God and he's, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, all over their, uh, I've seen the art in North Korea. He looks like (laughs) a divine being and that, Mm -hmm. uh, Stalin. So that's interesting because, so he effectively, I guess, once again, by removing the prince, a higher principle, 
Mm-hmm. It, it opens you up to self-deception to such an extent where he actually thinks he's pursuing the highest good for his people, I assumably or presumably. Yeah. Uh, but in fact, you know, he's known to be one of the most brutal rulers that ever existed. I mean, the numbers mm-hmm. that he murdered are just st- staggering, right? Um, mm. it, I think he's the guy, too, that said uh, one death is a tragedy, a uh, hundred million is a statistic or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he was the one that actually did that. He actually created those yeah. statistics. And yeah. so Peterson describes an ideology as kind of like a crippled religion in a way. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's something there is when you remove this higher principle of religion, right? Something that was discovered mm-hmm. again over time, right? Like mm-hmm. the, what's in the Bible, the principles in the Bible, for instance. So that's a long discovery process to put all that together. Of natural uh, law, yeah. Of natural law. So it's a decentralized mm-hmm. assembly of these principles. And when you abdicate that or you refuse that, and you adopt some ideology, you can become just self-deceiving like Stalin, um, mm. which is crazy to think about. And the, the last, again, I keep coming back to property. It's We always say property rights, but there is mm-hmm. another side to that coin, and it is the responsibility. That's kind of the big mm. point here. It's when you get rid mm. of the property rights, it's not just people's rights you're getting rid of, but it's their responsibility to, to be good stewards or caretakers of whatever they have a property right in, right? This could be mm. land. This, if, the, if it's the monarch, it could be the people, right? He actually has this mm. incentive to not tax them too aggressively, to not wage too much war, um, mm. because he has a capital interest in the tax base, which is something that's mm. fundamentally different from a democratic ruler. Um, mm. So I'll read one more excerpt here. I'm just so fascinated by this. There seems to be something very fundamental about decentralization versus centralization, like something perhaps Mm -hmm. even metaphysical in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So Hoppe says, for as a government's caretaker, not Mm -hmm. owner, this time he's referring to a democratic ruler, it is of little or no concern that any such redistribution can only reduce future productivity. Confronted with popular elections and free entry into government, However, the advocacy and adoption of redistributive policies is predestined to become the very prerequisite for anyone wanting to attain or retain a government caretaker Mm. position. Mm. So this idea that the democracy is premised on wealth redistribution just becomes Mm -hmm. this uh, irresistible place to be right people to start fighting mm-hmm. over getting in control of this thing to mm-hmm. es- essentially plunder the commonwealth uh to the benefit of their own self-interest and no one had again because there's no property right in the commonwealth or the tax base there's no responsibility mm-hmm. for society so the thing just unravels mm-hmm. yeah there there's definitely an aspect of that where uh, you know, a lot of people would take care of like their land, right? Like if they owned it and they would try to do the best with it. And if they're not taking very good care of it or don't care about it, they'll, they'll sell it to somebody that that will. Right. And that mm-hmm. that trans- transfer of property. Right. Um, and the ability for somebody to make better use of it or make more profit with it. This is this is how civilization gets built. Um, but a- as Hoppe points out, like the. But what what you get in a democracy is, uh, you know, the 
you know, sort of top-down law instead of decentralized law, right? Like a law that is discovered and based on a case-by-case basis and, um, you know, not necessarily like sweeping and changing for, uh, you know, applying to every single person like legislation does. Uh, but when, when you have the, what legislation essentially does is it picks winners and losers in some right. way, shape or form. And, uh, and that ultimately means that, you know, somebody gets screwed over, somebody, uh, you know, you know, benefits. And it, mm-hmm. it, it's this uh, redistributive nature of legislation in general, which uh, which, which ultimately affected. And this is why, like, uh, you know, I, I kind of get what Hoppe is saying w- with its uh, sort of like uh, going hand, uh, you know, democracy going hand in hand with fiat money. That redistribution scheme is so much easier when you have fiat money available, mm, right. and it makes legislation that much more potent. Um, instead, and makes uh, the losers not as obvious. Uh, mm-hmm. it, instead, yeah. it becomes like, yeah. okay, well, it's uh, you know everybody paying for it, and the, yeah. there's a collective uh, responsibility that is shared, uh, though it's not made apparent to everybody. So it, it's. There is responsibility that gets paid for, or there there is public stuff that gets paid for, and it's paid by paid for by everyone uh, yeah. through legislation and through money printing. But it's not at all like clear when it, when it happens. So, for example, we had you know uh, stimulus payments to every single person uh, that, you know in the country or something like that. Yeah. What, where where did that money come from? <laughs> and, right, right. And, and it's it's not at all obvious. But you know through legislation, they are picking winners, they are picking losers. They are uh, they're it, it's essentially a redistribution scheme in uh, uh, in a different way. And I think that was the point that was very poignant for me uh, in in that passage that you had just read. Yeah, this, this the idea of fiat currency makes this redistribution much less visible. You can do it mm. over much longer durations of time. So you're kind of stealing from these, you know, abstract future selves or future others that don't really have a voice. Mm. And then, you know, finally and probably most sinisterly is that it gets disguised by academia. You know, that's what the past 100 years of Keynesian economics is effectively just different excuses for the government controlling money in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Hoppe, he makes the point that this whole situation actually transitions the state from one that actually produces and consumes, like under a monarchy, everyone tends to be productive, mm-hmm. to this state that's much more of a welfare state. And mm-hmm. that is depend. And I guess this goes hand in hand with the warfare aspect, which we'll talk about shortly. But people just become more dependent on the confiscated wealth of the state, right? They, you know, actual mm-hmm. welfare, um, the redistribution of wealth. He makes a point. It accelerates due to the, due to the election incentives, right? So people mm-hmm. just have four years to kind of get their take, and so they're <laughs> going to do whatever they can in terms of increase, increasing transfer payments which would be like direct mm-hmm. confiscation, could be education, infrastructure bills, protection laws. All of these things serve to redistribute wealth effectively. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to the point, again, back to time preference, when you can just steal value by the stroke of a pen, you know, the legislator's pen, mm-hmm. you're and you're creating this dependent class like we're seeing today mm-hmm. where people are just getting government checks in the mail. So we have labor shortages already, Mm. um, which is just the beginning of all the issues we're going to face with inflation. 
you're incentivizing idleness, rent seeking, mm-hmm. short sightedness. You're just raising the time preference across the board. So mm-hmm. it's a ama- it's it's self deception at scale, I guess. Like yeah, even if yeah. you really believe, if you deeply truly believe the intention of all these you know pieces of legislation it still wouldn't matter. It's like you're trying to do one thing, but you're creating its opposite consequence. Hmm. Yeah, there's uh, definitely a a significant amount of self-deception involved because, you know, even for the legislators themselves, they they actually think they're doing a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like that they are implementing justice and so on. And I would think, and I think it's sort of like a a weird form of justice. Uh, It's, um, you know, like, uh, equality of outcome rather than equality of opportunity. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, no, nobody like, you know, as, communism. as you pointed out earlier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, nobody, uh, as you pointed out earlier, nobody like tries to run for Congress saying, I will pass no legislation, right? Like that, that just <laughs> right. doesn't happen. Like that's, yeah. that, like they, they, they need to uh, have some other redistribution scheme that they run on yes. in order to, uh, you know, get elected or uh, for people to have reason. And usually it's, I will get you more money and take it from other states or something like that, or from other districts yeah. or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. I'm re- representing. Um, but but that's ultimately what, what it is. And you have all these people sort of fighting and then they uh, almost always agree to just take from everybody and redistribute basically a according to need or something like that. And you, you get this very weird um, dynamic where you, you do get a lot more rent seeking, a lot more people that just sort of don't contribute anything because they don't need to, they have no incentive to. They uh, mm-hmm. And again, this is a difference between empiricist and, uh, you know, a priori thinking. Uh, you know, if, if you're thinking from an a priori perspective, you would be like, okay, well, People would rather not work than work. Uh, so if you pay them to not work, then they're just not going to work and not be productive. Um, right. Whereas from an empiricist standpoint, well, okay, they they don't have income, therefore, if uh, you know, we we know the unemployment data, and the and un, when the unemployment uh, numbers are too high, then that means that you know the economy is doing bad. So we're going to you know support them and sort of uh, in their unemployment and uh, and help them out. And right. that will ultimately result in good. Like there, there's no way for them to know yes. that, but that's that's a logic that they uh, subscribe to. And that, uh, and that contributes to this decivilizing. It's, um, you know, I'm, re- I'm reminded of, uh, mm-hmm. of something that I was discussing uh, with somebody else about like the book of judges. Uh, and mm. this was an era in Israel when they didn't have a king and, you know, God specifically told them, you know, you don't want a king. Mm-hmm. You don't want a king. You don't want a king. There's there's all sorts of evil that comes through sort of this centralization. And um, and one of one of the lines that's sort of oft repeated in the book of Judges was, you know, and everything did what was right by their own eyes. Right. And this mm-hmm. is kind of the uh, the thing about decentralized law that you were talking about. It, it's you know, you, you did have actual judges, right, like that, that would judge mm-hmm. over various yeah. people. Uh, but when you have a lot of people that do what seems right in their own eyes, this is sort of thought of as a bad thing in Christian circles, but now I'm just sort of reframing it. Maybe it's, it, it was a good thing because you had uh, sort of like 
a decentralized law that sort of came into play. Um, and all sorts of bad things happened once Israel got a king. Um, you know, obviously, Saul, uh, you know, the very first one was Saul, then David, then Solomon. And those are OK. But then after that, it just got really, really bad. Uh, and they, uh, you know, it, it just the, the people got corrupted and it was sort right. of like a top down thing. Um, so I, I wonder if, uh, you know, decentralized law is basically like, taking the uh, the best parts of what everyone sort of agrees is morality and and sort of allowing that to flourish it it, it is sort of like the ideal of democracy um that that that's done uh but without sort of the mechanics of democracy mm-hmm. uh like that's what democracy purports to do it's like okay we get mm-hmm. all of the opinions of the people you know and uh put them in the, into these representatives and then we create laws based on that instead they end up uh you know like creating laws that are by like a few lobbyists and uh you know that that that's who actually gets the laws in um the ideals are noble but the actual implementation is, has a lot of incentive flaws, which right. end up with uh, really bad law, uh, which is essentially what Hoppe points out. You, you just simply can't know uh, things at the ground level uh, without a priori thinking, uh, mm-hmm. without rationalism, uh, that, that you think you can uh, sort of from a top-down um, you know, perspective of a legislator. Yes. No, it's well said. I'm reminded too that Moses even, right? That was, he basically Mm -hmm. observed these patterns of action for 40 years. And then he abstracted Mm -hmm. from that, the 10 commandments, right? That's, that's Mm kind of like law discovery. It's like, here's what's been happening Mm -hmm. for a long time. And here are the rules Mm -hmm. of the patterns that you guys have more or less been abiding to. Well, that's um, a Petersonian, I think, uh, conception, but I, I get it. Absolutely. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Most, most of my, <laughs> a lot of my knowledge <laughs> comes from that guy. Um, I think your point too of legislation picking winners and losers, you know, it, it all, it presupposes coercion and that's, mm. that's just never discussed or even understood. I think people mm. like we're, we're so indoctrinated in, into this belief that the answer to every problem in the world is some new piece of legislation or some new law. Mm. We need to make this illegal, illegal or this tax increase. You know, mm-hmm. the big thing now is the environment, you know, carbon credits mm. and this is like, there's, there's no way to really create a coherent model of socioeconomics when you have coercion built into it, right? You're always going to be dispossessing mm. some group of people. So that's going to mm. cause the thing to, uh, to not be sustainable effectively. And I think to your point, what I'm, what I, it seems like when we ignore rationalism, we're ignoring these a priori, uh, principles. It all, it almost makes us arrogant in a way, because then you Mm. can just, you can look at history and you can look at economic history and you can put whatever interpretation on it you want effectively. You know, you, Mm. what does the old saying? Like he controls, the model controls the narrative, something like that. It's where mm-hmm. you could take a story any direction you want, but if it's not grounded in something, you know, mm-hmm. something like rationalism, then um, we can just become hubristic and tyrannical, even in, in the sense mm-hmm. of, of leadership. And, you know, this whole thing just twists and destroys incentives in a democracy. And I'll just, I want to read one more passage here that 
I think he really puts a button on it. Hobby says, quote, not producing or not producing anything worthwhile or not correctly predicting the future and the future exchange demand for one's products thus becomes relatively more attractive or less prohibitive as compared to producing something of value and predicting the future exchange demand correctly, which that's what the entrepreneur is supposed to do. He's supposed to match um, current action to future demand effectively. So he's saying that whole value proposition becomes less attractive in a democracy. And he goes on to say that for if individuals possess even the slightest control over the criteria that entitle a person to be either on the receiving or the giving end of the wealth redistribution, they increasingly will shift out of the latter roles and into the former. Mm. So it's just, we poison the incentives that organize us by creating this mechanism for wealth redistribution. Mm. Um, I don't see how you can, like, how do you argue that away? It's just people, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Well, in a sense, I think uh, all of government, and I think Hapa would uh, would agree with this view. All of government is sort of like another set of incentives that sort of interferes with what would build civilization, what mm-hmm. would actually um, satisfy people's wants. So, you know, government regulation is sort of like the classic thing, right? Like, okay, you have to do these things, and doesn't really oftentimes help anybody, or it, it's just ticking some boxes for some bureaucrat or something like mm-hmm. that. But it's another incentive that uh, that gets introduced because now you have to contend with this thing. And, you know, if, if you're getting a contract from the government, well, then ticking those boxes ends up being uh, a lot more easier to fulfill because there are usually very clear rules about that or something something to that effect whereas the market tends to be a lot more fickle and harder to predict so uh instead of fulfilling the market's demands you fulfill sort of the political demands of whatever government is uh is giving you and that that's a lot easier to do and you can kind of see that in a lot of zombie companies. How many how many yeah. uh, commercials did you see during the pandemic? Oh, uh, you know, we know it's a difficult time and, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, you know, and then, the you know, a few months later, it's, you know, we stand with Black Lives Matter and blah, blah, blah. Like singing from that song sheet is a lot easier than actually making products that the market wants, That's right? right? That's yes. way easier, yes. way easier. Yes. So, of course, people are going to go gravitate towards those things and, uh, you know, suck from the government teeth rather than fulfill the needs of the market because people's preferences change, their tastes change, yes. um, you know, how they, you know, decide things changes. So it's not it's not surprising to me that in a sense, government stuff is a lot more predictable and certain, but it doesn't produce anything. Uh, right. The market is. Uh, you know, at least market demand on certain things is not that predictable and it mm-hmm. is uncertain, uh, but it actually produces goods and services or, or it, it's it's actually like better for civilization. So Productive, yeah. in that way, that that that's the big difference of why people gravitate towards sort of rent seeking stuff. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. 
One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. You know, we covered how democracy basically shifts the state towards more of a welfare state, more dependency on government. Um, and then the, the flip side to that is that it also seems to push it into more warfare. Mm -hmm. This is the, the, you know, welfare slash warfare state we've all grown so accustomed to today. <laughs> and there's once again, there there's an rationalism behind this. There's a reasoning to it and Hoppe lays it out very clearly. And so one of the points he made earlier was that, you know, every governance system, it's got, it, it's a business at the end of the day. So it's got a uh, penchant for growth. It wants to expand. It wants to grow. But uh, he made the point that monarchies had this option where they could expand uh, via contract or via uh, marriages, right? They do mm. interdynastic marriages. I think you said marriages between mm. dynasties was a way to bring uh, new territories together. Whereas the democratic ruler doesn't have that option, really. The de mm. democratic ruler only has pretty much one option, and that is it's war, basically. It's coercion <laughs> and, and or war. So... Um, and Hobby says, I said, if a democratic ruler and a democratically elected ruling elite want to expand their territory and hence their tax base, then only a military option of conquest and domination is open to them. Hence, the likelihood of war will be significantly increased. Um, and this is, and one other point he makes, uh, now he's comparing it back to what a, a, um, a citizen under a monarchy was exposed to. He said, the citizen under monarchy was required to participate neither in the decision out of which wars arose, nor to take part in them once they broke out, unless prompted by a spirit of youthful adventure. These matters were arcana regni, the concern of the sovereign alone. Hmm. So again, the, the monarchical sovereign was responsible for his own exploits. Right. If he was mm -hmm. going to go to war, he had to wage the war, presumably within the confines of his own balance sheet. He needed to raise mm -hmm. an army. Um, the, he goes on to make the later point that that army, he had to put so such an investment into the army because troops were precious, effectively, that <laughs> battles became more about skillful maneuvering than absolute mm -hmm. brutality and trying to just kill as many mm -hmm. people as possible. Whereas in the democratic mode, you know, we can conscript, right? You have this, this mm -hmm. form of military slavery, if you will, where you can just basically be drafted into the army and sent off to war. Um, so that became, that made war much more a game of large numbers where, you know, we, as we saw in 
in the 20th century with World War One and World War II. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think this is particularly bad. A particularly bad aspect of democracy is that it increases the scale and duration of warfare, particularly when combined with fiat currency. Yeah, and uh, and this is something else that he points out. Besides the monarch having sort of like possession of these troops, right? These are essentially his employees and, uh, and you know, it costs a lot of money and there is a balance sheet to think about and so on. Uh, the, the thing that I, he points out, and I'm trying to find the quote here, is that in a, in a monarchy, uh, you know, it's usually sort of like an economic calculation that you make, mm -hmm. right? Like, do I go invade this place? Um, and if you do, it's because it, you're going to get more money out of it than what you spend. It, it's right. still kind of stealing, right? Like you're you're having to take over somebody's yes. resources yeah. or whatever. Um, but at least it's an economic calculation, and there's there's a price signal to be involved, right? Like you mm. you have to go into this much debt, or you spend this much of your savings, and mm. here's the you know future expected revenue from conquering this place, uh, which might involve a tribute if, uh, if they settle or, you know, the, um, or if you have to actually siege the place and, uh, you know, get them all, uh, you know, get them to surrender and then sell them all into slavery, you know, like that, that might produce some amount of money and you can, you can do at least an economic calculation. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing about uh, democracies that he points out is that, it becomes a war of ideology. And this is, mm. uh, and that's a very different thing because when it's an economic calculation, when it's no longer profitable, you just don't do it. There, there's, a, mm. a, there's a clear deterrent to war when, uh, when it's an economic calculation. It, ju it just has to cost so much that you're not willing to do it. Uh, but when it becomes a war of ideology, uh, a war of principle, well, there's there's no real compromise in that. It's it's like okay, we were fighting over this territory because it's valuable because it's got a gold mine on it or something like that, yeah. and uh, and we're we're gonna take it, uh, you know, like because we have more more firepower or whatever, or you can you know we can fight this really big war and you'll probably still lose. So you know most people don't, and most countries don't go and invade you know, valuable things like gold mines, because they're usually very well protected and, you know, like it'll cost a lot or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but with a war of ideology, you know, it's, it's like nobody knows when to like cut things loose, right? Mm -hmm. Like they, they don't say, okay, well, no more because, and especially when combined with fiat money, when you can spend the resources of all of your subjects, you you just like inflate the hell out of it uh, out of the money and you can you can pour more and more into it and there's a fervency to the war that wasn't necessarily there before mm -hmm. and you you do end up using humans like cannon fodder and i think uh you know that that initially started with uh like the us civil war um you know it's it's called like one of the first modern wars for that reason cuz it wasn't about an economic calculation. It was the principle of keeping the union together. Mm -hmm. That that was Lincoln's driving, um, you know, uh, desire, and that that that's what drove him to go and do that. So it was either total victory or none. There was never ever going to be a negotiated settlement unless the South won, in which right. case they 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 would have been fine with that because uh, all they wanted was independence. So it became you know keep the union together or. Uh, you know, complete independence. Those are not compatible at all. There's no compromise between right. the two. 
So there, there was no way that that was going to be like, uh, you know, resolved in anything other than complete destruction, which is essentially what happened. And with Lincoln's introduction of the greenback and suspending convertibility and so on, he was able to do a lot of the things that a central bank was able to do, right. like in World War One, which was an even bigger one. Uh, and in many ways, that that became sort of like. Uh, a fight to save uh, to make the world safe for democracy. The, this was right. Woodrow Wilson's quote, and uh, and that became also an ideological war in which uh, you know it, it started as a territorial one and one where you know Serbian separatists wanted independence and so on, mm-hmm. uh, but it became this like global conflict in large part because you know, everyone sort of doubled down and, and then it became an ideological war later, uh, especially after Wilson entered the war and the Russian Revolution happened. So mm-hmm. it became, you know, once you get to that point, there's no real turning back. There's no negotiated settlement uh, that, that that's really even possible. And because of the ability of fiat money to fund it, it just it, it becomes really, really bad. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the, again, these ideologies, which um, you know we called earlier, kind of a crippled religion. Mm. Once that comes into play, like the only satisfactory outcome is the complete elimination of one ideology by another. Right? They just mm. they it gets really bad. It, it moves from being an economic struggle to being something much more. Um, possessing i guess you could say mm-hmm. and uh, on the civil war i thought again it all comes down to the money i think even when it's wrapped mm-hmm. in the ideology like the, the mm-hmm. people really pulling the string they're still doing it for the money because i know lincoln you know the south was i think one third of the population mm-hmm. but they were generating like three quarters of the tax revenues so lincoln was mm-hmm. actually fighting to keep the tax base under his control <laughs> effectively Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, yeah, that I did a, a series of Dominic Frisbee on that. And he wrote a chapter about the civil war and which is interesting because, mm-hmm. you know, I went to public school in Tennessee. We were mm-hmm. taught it was for the moral crusade of ending slavery. That's why Lincoln went to mm-hmm. war. You know, he put his foot down mm-hmm. and wanted to free the slaves, but it's total mm-hmm. BS, right? It's this history written by the winners <laughs> propaganda. Um, I want to read. One excerpt here. This is Hoppe actually quoting uh, a gentleman named Ferrero. And he says, quote, conscription existed only in a rudimentary and sporadic form. He's referring to the the monarchy right now. Mm. Soldiers being scarce and hard to find, everything was done to ensure their quality by a long, patient and meticulous training. But as Mm. this was costly, it rendered them very valuable and it was necessary Mm. to let as few be killed as possible. Having to economize their men, generals tried to avoid fighting battles. The object of warfare was the execution of skillful maneuvers and not the annihilation of the adversary. A campaign without battles and without loss of life, a victory obtained by a clever combination of movements was considered the crowning achievement of this art, the ideal pattern of perfection. It was avarice and calculation that made war more humane. War became a kind of game between sovereigns. A war was a game with its rules and its stakes, a territory, an inheritance, a throne, a treaty. So 
yeah, again, the property, right? When there are property rights mm-hmm. and these soldiers, all of a sudden you have this responsibility. You don't want to just mm-hmm. lay waste to them versus if you're a democratic ruler and you're just renting the Commonwealth, it's like to hell with it. You'll just send as many soldiers as you need to from your country to go be cannon fodder. Mm-hmm. Um, it's incredible how the incentives are just destroyed on every side. Once you remove the the responsibility that, that property rights enshrine. Mm. Yeah. And this goes back to sort of like the public and private property again, uh, mm-hmm. because in a sense, the army was the monarchs um, in a democracy. The army is a public institution. It's yeah. uh, who does it belong to? We don't right. really know. And uh, and so like you uh, instead of uh, having sort of that class consciousness that he talks about, where it's clear this is the monarch's army. What the heck? It's it's you know uh, Regni Arcana or whatever it, mm-hmm. it was like the concern of the king. Yeah. And uh, but you know in a democracy it's like well that they belong to us. So the only real good reason to do it is uh, you know not economic. It's it, it's something ideological. So yeah. you you get this weird separation again, uh, be, where like conscription is much easier to justify in a democracy because. Well, this army kind of belongs to you. Yeah, You're right, part right. of the public um, yeah. instead of uh, kings taking you away and fighting his wars for his reason. Like that, that's yeah. a lot easier to protest than, well, you know, it's their duty to the country and it's 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 what you have to do uh, to secure our freedoms. And why, why are you being so selfish? You know, like that that's the argument that you get in a democracy where conscription becomes a lot more normal, uh, yeah. in, in part because it's a public institution, despite right. it not having any of like, you, I mean, you don't get to go and call the military to your house uh, if somebody if they're right. it or something like that. Right. Yeah. Like that's that's not how it works. Uh, so it, it's it's this weird uh, property boundary that uh, that, again, sort of like plays into this dynamic. Um, I will say, though, the that one thing that um, that Hoppe might be conflating a little bit here is the advent of uh, of guns, because <laughs> mm. uh, you know if you study military history, um, soldiers were extremely expensive in large part because you had to train them, right? So mm. to uh, shoot an arrow accurately is not easy, and you need a lot of training, a lot of arrows, and a lot yeah. of you know practice. Basically, um, you know English archers could apparently uh, shoot like you know, six arrows a minute or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that that took an enormous amount of training, right? And so th- those archers were extremely valuable. Um, but once you get sort of like modern weapons, um, now it's now now you don't need as much you still need training to shoot a gun and, right. and stuff like that. Don't don't take this podcast to mean like you could go shoot a gun whenever you want, like without <laughs> any training whatsoever. But it requires a lot less training. And that means that at, as a soldier, especially like Civil War, uh, World War One, World War Two, you you can't it is a lot more practical to just conscript people because, yeah. hey, you can you, you could train them to use a gun in like a few weeks. Right. Yeah. And like and, and to, you know, whip them up into shape and, uh, and and get them to march for, you know, 50 miles a day or whatever. You know, that that's not that uh, as difficult as training archers and cavalrymen and, you know, like uh, flag bearers and right. all, all the, you know, like people to those are actual skills that you need in order yes. to, like, learn how to fight from a horse uh, versus 
shooting a gun from a particular position or, or, or something to that, that's a lot less training. So right. in a sense, like, uh, you know, modern warfare has evolved to a point where it's very easy to make so, uh, soldiers out of the populace. And th this, again, goes into that dynamic of conscription and coercion that, that, that we've been talking about, where, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can just sort of like grab, you know, 30 people and it's like, well, okay, can you shoot a gun? Well, you're, you're, you know, maybe have like a 10% disadvantage against, you know, somebody that's more trained, yeah. but it's not like, uh, you know, 90% disadvantage that would have been say right. in 1600. Yes. No, that's an excellent point. And it, um, kind of speaks to the sovereign individual where it goes through these technological changes mm. that in, impact the logic of violence, but also impact the, the skill necessary, right? So the knight on mm. horseback for a long time was the martial force in the world, right? 40 peasants mm. can stop the guy. And a lot mm. of that was because of, which was interesting, like the stirrup is what made, mm -hmm. what allowed the heavy knight to get on the horse. That's what made mm -hmm. him so powerful, swift and powerful in the world. But once gunpowder was invented, all of a sudden, one peasant could take out a knight from 200 yards, right? Mm -hmm. And to your point, you need a lot more training to be a knight on horseback <laughs> than you do a guy <laughs> pointing and shooting a rifle. So um, the technological realities we inhabit, they have a huge influence on us, on, on our, mm. you know, on the, the course of history, I guess. So one other thing I thought was... And, you know, actually to touch on one other point, I think you said this recently too, public property is an oxymoron. Yeah, yeah. Or something to that effect. I think I got that from our last session. So Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. And it totally is. What is it? It doesn't make any sense because property, mm. I think the, the etym etymology of property is like one's own, right? When we say something's mm -hmm. proper even, it means like mm -hmm. it's, it's mm -hmm. proper to, it's suitable for the mm -hmm. user. Mm -hmm. In public property, I mean, no one... So everyone has the rights. Mm -hmm. No one has the responsibility. It's like, mm -hmm. it goes back to that, the Aristotle thing when everyone owns nothing, no one takes care of anything. Mm -hmm. um, and so it seems like it's, you know, clearly it's an oxymoron, but it seems like it's used to disguise these immoral actions, right? Like mm. you can be conscripted into the army because it's for your country. It's mm -hmm. your army, right? So mm -hmm. come and protect your country. But to your point, you don't have any property right in the military. You can't call them when you need them. If you win the war, the soldiers aren't mm -hmm. getting the spoils of war. Like they're being divvied mm -hmm. up at some other level. So mm -hmm. um, it seems like it's really meant to obscure the truth about war, which is someone is trying to, you know, the people in a position of power and decision-making, let's say, are trying to gain an economic advantage over another group. And they're using the army and you know under the guise of public property as a means to that end mm. um yeah yeah I, th this is exactly right like what what you end up uh with is you're fighting a war for someone else but it's not being made clear to you that you're fighting for someone else it's right. made to seem like you're fighting uh, uh for it on your behalf because you're not really protecting your own property you're protecting the country's property mm -hmm. the country's property it used yep. to be the monarch's property in which case it's like okay well then i better be compensated very well for right. it and so on instead it's 
your property, your country, it's, uh, it, it's all an illusion to get yes. you to behave in a way that is very expedient to the people that are in charge and so mm -hmm. on. And, you know, uh, one other thing I wanted to bring up is this idea of, um, uh, of public property. Uh, it, it does sort of like change, um, your, your view of a lot of things, right? Cause mm. you, you think it, um, it gives people a sense of entitlement to certain things. Um, and it, it, it makes people, um, uh, you know, think that their ideology is more certain than it is. Uh, mm -hmm. so, uh, for example, um, you know, you know, th this certainly happened in, uh, in, in a lot of earlier democracies, especially. Um, but you know, people like, what, one of the things that Hitler did was he he thought that these particular people were enemies of the state, right? Like mm. of, of the public thing, um, and that 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 led to sort of like an ideological vehemence, right? This mm -hmm. this is part of uh, uh, you know the ideology of war that happens or the reasons for war. It was um, you know he was doing it for the sake of expanding his tax base and many other things and you know the, like the traditional narrative around why he invaded poland was because he was just an aggressor actually it was for a lot of other reasons um and you know mm -hmm. they th those aren't really discussed and there are economic things that he was after and so on uh but also because you know poland was you know, uh, threatening, uh, where he was almost an ally with Poland before, you know, Poland made an alliance. And this was, this was sort of like, okay, what are you going to do now? Um, kind of moment. Uh, but re regardless of all of that, you know, the, he, he had a vehemence towards certain other ethnic groups, uh, obviously the Jews and uh, what a lot of people don't know are Slavs. He actually killed way more Slavs than, uh, than Jews, right? Like mm. he did this, because that was part of his ideology and that 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 was part of why world war ii ended up being so vehement was because he was insistent on killing as many of those people that uh you know he thought was an anathema to racial purity mm -hmm. um that 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 ended up uh sort of like fueling this uh ridiculousness uh of world war ii and of course you know like uh there was there was inflation going on in germany all that time and he was stealing from his people and uh you know because you could uh train soldiers fairly quickly um as long as you had the weapons and so on like it, it became this enormous enormous conflict uh but but the there there's a there's a particular sort of you know, almost a sense of entitlement, right? To get what you want ideologically mm. um, that happens in war. Um, and that that's not a very good thing. Uh, and that 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 like sort of like fuels that that's a like fuel for the hatred uh or the like worst parts of humanity uh that come out. And it, it may very well be a part of this uh sort of democracy thing, uh, which you know, it, it, when you have clear property boundaries, I think you get a little less of, and I have to develop this thought a little bit, um, you know, you, you get a little less of uh, this sort of vehemence against a particular group. I, you, right. People always blame groups for, for different things, but when it becomes ideological, then you, you know, there, it's total war or nothing. Whereas yes. with a monarch, you might blame somebody, but then there's sort of like a negotiated settlement possible, right? Like, 
you know, you might kick them out of your country or something instead of absolutely destroying them. Um, yeah. And that that seems, uh, you know, at least a lot more humane. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I think yeah, that's no, a thought I had. No, I would, I would like to, I, I want to try to extend on that thought. Um, mm-hmm. So this idea of, you know, the blurred lines of property, let's say, where mm-hmm. private mm-hmm. property is very bright line. It's like, you mm-hmm. know, you are your own property. Whatever you have justly acquired is your property effectively. Mm-hmm. But when you start to blur that into this public property domain, it seems to blur a lot of other lines of, of identification. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and Hoppy writes about this. He says, quote, resistance against higher taxes to fund a war is increasingly considered treachery or treason. Conscription becomes mm-hmm. the rule rather than the exception. And with mass armies of cheap and hence easily disposable conscripts fighting for national supremacy or against national suppression, backed by the economic resources of the entire nation, all distinctions between combatants and non-combatants fall by the wayside and wars become increasingly brutal. So it's kind of like, it seems to me that the entire concept of an ideology requires this emphasis on group identity, right? You need to get everyone mm. under one canopy of whatever it is, democracy, mm-hmm. Nazism, communism. And so you really need to discount individuality. And as mm. we know, like in you know the Austrian school um, and, and Rothbardian ethics and all of this, it's all about the individual. The individual is mm. the, the elementary unit of action. But when you start to abstract away from that, you know, I guess it's, this is related to property somehow. You're just not you're not honoring the individual's property rights, so therefore they become just kind of abstracted into this group ideology. That that's when mm-hmm. you get these other blurred lines between combatants and non-combatants, and it becomes total war effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like, and, and this, you know, to take it back to Christianity, it's like, you know. Jesus is so focused on the individual. It's like, you know, you, Mm. your heart, your relationship with God. Like there's not Mm. this nebulous society um, identification. Mm. So it is, again, it seems like there's something very fundamental here that, that when we discount the individual and elevate the group identity, we get these disastrous outcomes. Yeah, and that discount of the individual comes from sort of that empiricist view, right? It, it's mm. you, uh, you exist. Uh, it, it, it used to, uh, well, it starts out as we are representing you. Then it becomes we are representing all of you, and therefore your individual will doesn't necessarily matter because mm-hmm. it's all about statistically doing the most good for the most number of people mm-hmm. with uh, these very crude rule uh, tools of legislation uh, and and things that we have uh, to you know you exist for the sake of the state like, mm-hmm. like that that's sort of the transition that we tend to go from is we have individual sovereignty or you know like people. Um, you know, that that's who's important, then we are representing you and your rights and covering your rights. Or uh, as I perceive it, this is the sort of arc that the United States has gone and uh, mm-hmm. gone on. And then, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to do a collective good and make sure that everyone is benefiting and so on. This is 
sort of the stage that we're in right now, right? Where, where you can justify things like lockdowns and vaccines and, you know, whatever in order to do the collective good thing. Right. Um, and then the next stage after that is, okay, you exist for the sake of the state. And that's when like true evil really happens is yes. you, you exist for us and we are going to, you know, use you as whatever, and you are part of it. So you still have a stake in it or whatever. And you're, sort of morally obligated to uh, to follow us. Uh, but, you know, and I, admittedly, U.S. hasn't gone quite that far yet. And, uh, you know, but but we're not that far away. Right. No. The, these are the stages that kind of happen is, you know, from individual sovereignty, representative democracy to sort of like collective uh, utilitarianism mm -hmm. or something like that to you know, this stage of, okay, now you exist for the state and you're going to do whatever right. the state says, because that's by definition good. Um, and I, I, I don't think any of those transitions are that difficult to make because logically they kind of flow from one another. And maybe yeah. this is sort of at the heart of, uh, you know, Hoppe's rejection of democracy is that it does make this path to, uh, you know, very evil totalitarianism uh, and just, you know, complete violation of, uh, of natural law, yeah. very easy because this is a, a fairly straightforward path. Whereas with a monarchy, this is not easy at all. And it right. is very easy to identify tyranny. Whereas in on along this path, it's like it comes in very small doses and it's not at all clear that it's tyranny. And then like only people that sort of have an older mentality can identify tyranny as such. And, and you know, we, we get so indoctrinated in it and that, you know, when tyranny comes, it's like not, not clear to everybody that it is tyranny. Right. Uh, I, I, I thought, for example, that it would be very obvious to people that, you know, you're locked down in your house and you're not allowed <laughs> to come out is like an act of tyranny. Um, yeah, like a lot of people are saying, uh, thank you for keeping me safe or whatever that, that, that's just kind of crazy, crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, this is the path and pattern of the state as they just encroach little by little normalizing these things gradually over time before, mm. you know, you're, you're well down the slippery slope towards full-blown authoritarianism. Um, it seems to me too, it's interesting that there's almost like a Darwinian type relationship here where the ideology is trying to camouflage itself, right? It's trying to put this, mm -hmm. um, or I guess religious guys on it or moral guys so that people actually mm -hmm. allow it in. They invite it in mm -hmm. like, Oh, this is for the good lockdowns. I'm keeping other people safe. Mm -hmm. I'm wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. I'm protecting grandma. Like, Oh, you need mm -hmm. to inject me now. Sure. Let's do it. It's just, mm -hmm. they're praying again on that as you said earlier, the law written on people's heart, it's, there's, mm. it's almost like an, an organism, a metaphysical organism of evil or something trying to prey on the good intentions of people in a way. And it's, mm. it's really insidious. Um, yeah. I would call that the art of rhetoric. Right. And yeah. it's, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, lesser flattering name for that would be, uh, propaganda and mm. it, it's used, um, you know, it's used to influence us in a particular way. And most propaganda isn't just, you know, isn't like straight up lies. That's that's not how mm -hmm. propaganda right, works. Right, right. I, I think I said that last time. But it's it's about telling just the portion of the truth that is most favorable to your yes. cause. 
and uh, and that's definitely what they do. Yeah, you're not killing grandma, I guess. But, yes. you know, they're, what they're not telling you is the other truth, which is that you are restricted from, you know, uh, building civilization or doing other good things. And yes. you are also like restricting a lot of other people that are vulnerable uh, from doing things that would be healthy for them. Uh, right. So it, it's, uh, you know, that, that that's the part that is kind of endemic to democracy as well and probably a part of war is this ability uh, you you're constantly having to make that argument because it is of this sort of like collectiveness of public property mm -hmm. to make the argument that it is ultimately good for the collective in some way mm -hmm. shape or form and that it, uh and in order to do that you you have to use propaganda because most of the time it's it's not at all clear, right? Like, yeah. why did we go to war in Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever, right. right? It's like, okay, we make these, you know, and, you know, propaganda's job is to show how bad Saddam is or weapons of mass destruction, which turned out to be a lie. That was bad propaganda, by the way, because you you you, you got found out if it was good propaganda, you still would believe it. Um, but, you know, that that was a way in which, uh, you know, they they could manipulate people into thinking that it was for the common good. So yes. in a sense, like under a monarchy, I think you have a lot more honest uh, sort of uh, evaluation of what's going on uh, because it's it's just clearer what's mm -hmm. going on there. They're, it, OK, it's the kings and the king mm -hmm. wants us to do this. Now we make the uh, make make a calculation based on sort of like honest weights and measures instead yes. of sort of like deceiving. Okay, here here are all the good things. I'm not going to yeah. tell you any of the bad things. Um, and that that that's that's where you know uh, propaganda ends up becoming such a so much of a bigger part of a democratic society than a monarchy. And we're we're all subject to that, and we're all sort of like children of that. Um, and we're our brains are probably wired a little differently as a result of that. And uh, yeah, it, it's a pernicious evil. And unfortunately, like you know, we're even in the Bitcoin community, we're having to fight fire with fire, right? Like, uh, yeah. you know, all, all, all of these like three word memes and so on, they're, they're a part of rhetoric. They're a part yeah. of, uh, in a sense, like pointing out the good things and like, uh, you know, succinctly, uh, you know, putting pulling in large concepts into a single phrase. So something like number go up is yes, it, it's it's very deep um, and there, there is something to it. But in a sense, you you have to fight that battle because that's how people's brains work now. They're right. so susceptible to it that, it, it you know, because property boundaries are not clear at all, they think they're doing it for themselves. And you're essentially convincing people against their own interests to to do certain things yeah. uh, or to violate other people's rights which I, I think is an anathema yeah it's so confounding in many ways and i this is where i really i've been reading ethics of liberty by rothbard recently and i just i've really come to appreciate how he cuts through all of this confusion right there's so much nuance mm -hmm. and gray area but if you just focus on property, it's like whose property mm -hmm. interest is being violated, who's being transgressed against, that's the main crux of almost every matter in human interaction. Mm -hmm. And to your point, in a monarchy, at least it's clear, right? You're like, you're either part of the ruling class or you're part of the ruled class. And it's very clear what side of the property equation 
you're on effectively. Um, and that seems to, you know, I'm not arguing that it's perfect or anything, but it seems to at least uh, disinhibit a lot of this deception and propaganda build up. It's like the king's just going to war. It's like, that's what the king does, right? You don't, mm. he's not necessarily going to um, conscript a bunch of people against their will because they, um, I mean, I assume they would defect or, or they, I think you made the point earlier that conscription was just sporadic, not mm. systemized. So I don't know. The, if we just get back to a, a focus on, property and the rights and responsibilities it instills it seems like we could clear the air of a, a lot of this deception 